This is David's Book Talk, bringing authors and book lovers together in a unique way since 2009. Visit us at davidsbooktalk.com and join the conversation at facebook.com slash davidsbooktalk. But first, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Here's your host, David English. Hello and welcome to David's Book Talk. And today we're going to talk to Stephanie Ivanovich, whose new book, Under the Table is just out from William Morrow, and she's here to talk about it. Hello. Hi. How are you? Me, David. <laughs> you sound nice, nice and cheery. <laughs> I am. It's, you know, the weekend, and I just came off, you know, a few appearances, and uh, feel refreshed. Yeah. And it's spring. Did you, have, did you have a lot of people come? You know, I did. I actually had pretty good turnout, so I'm... Um, you know, I I don't I don't mind either way. Yeah. Like if it's only two people, then I get to sit with them and really talk to them. So and I feel like a lot of my readers are friends anyway, thanks to social media. So I don't care how many people show up. I'm having a good time. Well, that's a, that's a good way to look at it because I've been to signings where nobody did show up and. It can be. So have I. I've been uh, <laughs> Not yours. I'm just saying other <laughs> authors that I, when I worked at the bookstore, they, they had ones where nobody showed up, and you know. And then it you know, everybody feels weird about that. I think the bookseller feels weird. I think the author feels weird. And the fact is, there's just so much going on all the time. Right. Literally, when I say there is one blogger who I met in Mississippi, she was the only person who came. We ended, I learned so much about blogging and publishing mm -hmm. that it's like the greatest gift to have had that time alone with her. Mm -hmm. And it would have happened if a huge crowd had turned out. Right. And that's stuff like that. Everything's relative, David. Everything's relative. Right. You have, you have a, an unusual way to look at things. Most authors would, I mean, I, I've, I've met authors who panic if they don't have a certain crowd or they don't have a certain number of people. This is what yeah. this is what your fourth book. This is my fourth book. Right. So it has a lot to do with my art, my martial arts training. I'm a black belt in taekwondo, and while I don't actually practice on the floor anymore, the you know the the cerebral stuff really took root, and um, you know some things you can't change, and that's one of them. Right. I, I, I'm. I mean, I enjoy I enjoy the way you write. I like the way this book is written. It just you 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 instantly get into the story. Oh, thank you. You instantly get annoyed with some of the characters too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's the whole point of a novel, I guess. Because there's always those characters you don't like, or or they annoy you to the point where you're like, oh, I hope they don't become a nuisance in the story. Yeah, yeah. And, and under the table has a couple of them, depending who you are. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's okay. And I mean, and, and that's meant. To, it has to be that way. If, you, if everybody was was perky and wonderful, what kind of a novel would you have? Yeah, a boring one. I mean, imagine imagine Songs of the Lambs without Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. I mean, where <laughs> where would you be? <laughs> Although, with, you know what? Did you feel weird because, like, you kind of rooted for Hannibal Lecter after a while? Why? Why would we root for somebody who's killing people? Well, because he was just so... I mean, I'm talking more from, like, the movies. 
Right. But you know, when I when I think of Silence of the Lambs, that like end scene where you know he's looking at the the ex warden, right. like on vacation or took off, and he's like, "I'm having a friend for dinner," and that guy was such a jerk. You kind of wanted Hannibal to get him, you know. And I remember feeling like, "There's something wrong with me. Am I like a secret? Am I a secret psycho?" Well, that's a, that's the, the the skill of a writer that they can make you feel sympathy for for a totally reprehensible character. Yeah. And yeah, that is true. That that's very true. It's like when you watch a TV show and you, the villain is so wonderful, and you think, well, they can't get rid of the villain, or the show will suffer. Right. You know, because the villain makes makes the show watch more watchable, like J.R. Ewing from Dallas. Oh my gosh! Yes, I remember those. I remember my Dallas days. Friday night. He was pure evil, and yet he was. Somebody loved him somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Hard as that is to believe. When he got shot, remember that? Who shot Jr.? Right. So that was huge. You, this is your fourth book, all with the same publishing company. Yes. Now there's an apron on the cover. Are you a, a big cook? Is that what is that what made you write this book a little bit? Because you like to cook. I'm, a, I'm actually not. It's kind of weird, you know. Once my kids grew up, and it's just. First of all, once my kids left, I had trouble adjusting, and I raised boys, so I kept cooking as if I had a family of, like, growing boys here, so there would always be all this leftover food. My husband would be like, it's just the two of us, babe. Right. And I, all right, so, um, and it's funny because I love kitchens, and I loved researching the cooking. It was like, to be able to research, like, all the recipes, and she's a chef. Mm-hmm. It was like all of the enjoyment without any of the mess. You know what I mean? My kitchen was still clean. I would get a lovely picture of what it looked like, and I, you know, would think about tasting it. Sometimes I'd go out and, like, order something, like, at a restaurant so I wouldn't have to cook it. So um, I did make a mean hamburger helper back in the day. Does that count for anything? I, I guess not. Oh, certainly. <laughs> But, but my kids thought it was great. Like they, but, they were so easy to please. You know? But it, it begs the question: Do you know somebody like Zoe who does love to cook and who is obsessed with cooking and, and enjoys it? My mother was the most amazing cook, and my mother made like my mother was so ahead of her time. I mean, she was making her own bread in like the seventies, and you know, without a bread maker, like she literally made bread. And she had a plethora of cookbooks and Bon Appetit magazines, and you could see her just, you know, going through them and her brain working on what she wanted to try. She was really amazing. She was good, too. When you love it, you love it. And, you know, that's the thing. If you don't love it and you're doing it for other people, you know, that, that means a lot to the to people you're doing it for. But you never want to tell them you don't like to cook, though, do you? <laughs> Well, that's, that's, that's true, but, you know, with my mother, she kind of knew my cooking skills were mediocre because I didn't take to it back in the day, but now when she, you know, we want to take her out sometimes, because my mom's like in her 80s, and she, when she says she would rather, you know, whip something up for us to visit, but we're, we're secretly like, yes! Now, we should know. the mad skills. Yeah, exactly. We should mention the, uh, your last name, Ivanovich. Now, that's a very popular name in in, in publishing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, how are you related? 
Um, Janet is my aunt. She but I not swim in her gene pool. My dad and her husband are brothers. Oh, wow. So, by marriage, it's not related, but, you know, I've known her all my life, so. Well, that's it. So my aunt, you know. Because there's going to be people out there who's going to, who are going to write to me and say, why didn't you ask her if I don't? So I have to ask. And oh, I'm curious you know what, anyway. I usually, um, when I appear, there's usually one or two people that, you know, were thinking it was going to be her. And I would just like to say to your readers that, you know, Janet's an icon. You know, if she's going to do an appearance, it's not going to be in your local independent bookstore. Like, you know, you need a wristband and you stand online and an appearance from Janet is a huge deal. So I appreciate, you know, in some ways I'm flattered, but in other ways I want to say, yeah, it's sorry, sorry to disappoint. But on a, on a good note, I've actually gained readers that way. Mm -hmm. I've got letters from people who said, you know what, I picked up your book by mistake and it turned out, you know, now now I'm going to read all your other books. Well, that's so, not, see, now that's nice. That is nice. And everything, like I said before, everything's relative. So, um, you know, I'll take it. You know, and that's like another thing. Every writer pays their dues, whether you pay them in the end or you pay them in the beginning. Um, I wanted to be an actor, like most of my life. It was only when I realized that I was never going to make the right connections for acting that mm -hmm. I thought, well, how else can I stay in the entertainment medium? And thought, well, you know, let me try writing a book. At least, you know, maybe this will get someone's attention. And it turned out that it turned out to be a, a good bet. And now I entertain. I just entertain as a writer. So always be flexible in your dreams. And that's the thing with acting. People who who have a dream of acting, in their dream, everything's always perfect. But we all know the acting business is far from perfect. Absolutely. And I lived, I think what was the clincher for me was that I lived in um, a town called Bonamassa, which borders Asbury Park. Wow. And and Asbury Park, New Jersey, does a lot of filming. There are a lot of actors and production companies that film there. So do you remember that movie, The Wrestler, with uh, Mickey Rourke as the washed-up wrestler? Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, they filmed part of that in Convention Hall, which literally is at the end of my street. If, you know, if, if I just walked straight towards the ocean, I would end up at Convention Hall. I probably could have hit Mickey Rourke with a rock. I wonder what it is about Asbury Park that, that's so conducive to filming. You know what? I think it's it's iconic as far as, like, it's a rock and roll sort of town. So Bruce Springsteen, you know, you can always find people wandering around Asbury Park who were in, um, you know, Bruce filmed videos there. I know New Jersey in itself has a lot of um, film history, you know, like... Tom Cruise filmed there. The Sopranos filmed in um, in Asbury Park. Robert De Niro did a movie. But what would happen is I would find out about all of these filmings when these things hit the theaters. Mm. So I thought to myself, you know what, if I can't get to be in a crowd scene about a washed-up wrestler literally a mile from my house, I must not have the right connection. Right. And how much community theater I did, that wasn't going to change that. So, and I, when I say I, I was an actor for 30 years, you know, I was always, 
sort of involved, but at the same time, I was a mom. Right. And my children were just, like, that was my calling. The minute I held my first baby, that was my calling, and I loved it. So everything came second to that at the time. But now my children are grown, so it was time to start wondering, you know, it was time to make a decision, what am I going to do here? Right. What makes me happy? I mean, what... You wake up, in the, and I, and we all do this. We all wake up in the morning, and you think to yourself, what would really make me happy? What would, what would, what, what can I do with the rest of my life that would make me feel good about myself? Yeah, you have to have a purpose. Right. You have to have a purpose. Amen. And now I just sort of realize, you know, I can, I can entertain and uplift people through my writing. Right. And it took a while to get there, because literally, when I wrote my first book, Big Girl Panties, Let's, you know, let's figure I took 49 years to write that. It was something I dabbled in on and off over the years. But I, I never studied writing. It's not like I'm an English major, although, although I come from a family of teachers. Right. So I had to learn the craft after already being published. And that was a challenge. Sometimes, yeah. There's a lot to it, you know what I mean? And, and you get so much advice that you have to try to figure out what advice is meant for you and what advice is not. Mm-hmm. So. And hearing a lot about the writing, the whole industry of publishing, and you hear, you know, all, all of the authors and, and, their, and their publicists and their agents are always like, when, when's the next book coming? When? And the, the pressure that you hear about, you think, oh, my goodness, how could I handle all that pressure of having to have a, a book a year or having to have this done? Or, you know, like Nora Roberts, you have to have a book every five seconds, you know? <laughs> right, well, and, and, you know, Nora is prolific like that. You know, like, that's not a problem for her. And I think that there are writers that that's not a problem. I'm not one of those writers. Right. And He's not at this juncture. So that book a year thing was really making me incredibly unhappy, mm-hmm. quite frankly, because I was having to think about it. Nobody wants to think about their job 24-7. Right. And that was really how it was starting to shape up for me, and my health was starting to suffer with it. So I kind of took a step back and said, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't want to be a book a year writer. I want to, like, give it, and I want to enjoy the process. Right. And I don't that you can enjoy the process when you're just part of the machine grinding out words. And, and there's certain authors, and one of them is Elizabeth George. When I, I read Elizabeth George, and, and I realize after I read her, I'm not going to have another one at least for two or three years. It's a daunting thing. It's like you think, oh, my gosh, I need to have more. It's, it's almost I, like a drug. I think that that has a lot to do with the whole um, immediate gratification that comes with our technology. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. everybody, you know... But, but don't you have writers that you love that you can't wait for the next book? I never had... You know, I closed books and thought, oh, man, that was great, and I loved it. I've never once been like, I wish she was grinding them. You know, I, I think... And it's funny you brought up Nora Roberts. I once did a signing at her bookstore in, um, in Boonton. Right. And Another writer, because she has, you know, she has thousands of people that come to see her at her own bookstore. Um, and another writer asked, you know, how do you know, you know, how how long 
you, you know, strive to make your books. And, and she literally said, you know, it's done when it's done. You know, and I've heard her say that, too. And, and I was like, wow. It felt kind of liberating. Right. At the same time, you know, you're actually in the presence of the queen. So it was like a weight lifted, you know, off me. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll never understand. Done how, when it's done, you know. I'll never understand how she can write so many books that, that so many people love and, and do it consistently. It's astounding. She's amazing. She's amazing. I mean, I, I, she's one of these people I want to sit down with and just say, now, come on, give me the secret. How do you do this time and time and time? How do you come up with these plots time and time and time again and so quickly? And, you know, and it, it just amazes me that she's able to do that. And everyone's got to be different from the other one. She's so disciplined. Do you know? Like, she just, I, I... I mean, when do you ever get to when do you ever get to the point where you say, "Oh, okay, I've written two hundred and fifty books. I think that's yeah. enough." I think I'll take a vacation. I don't know. I think that there are writers. She's probably one of them. Mm -hmm. Where you know, part of the advice that I got with her, you know, a lot of people are like, "You should write every day," and I would think to myself, "Jeez, you know, like even God took a day off on Sunday." Right. <laughs> Writing every day. But there are people that it's such a part of them that if they don't write every day, something's missing from their lives. So those people should write every day. Right. I don't think it means that you're not a good writer if you don't write every day. Right. Well, your title, you know I mean? your title under the table, <laughs> it's such a, it has, I mean, it has multiple meanings. <laughs> it does. And that, I do is, most of my titles. And that is that meant? Do you do that on purpose? Of course. <laughs> Of course. of course. And it's rare that, you know, like it's, it's a collaborative effort when you're working with the publisher. And you know what? They're the pros. So you should, you know, you shouldn't look at them as like an adversary. You should look at them as somebody who wants to bake the best book for right. you. And, um, yeah, when I sit under the table and they went with it, I was like, oh, okay. Because usually there's a lot of throwing around of, you know, ideas, and so once we hit on that, I thought, oh, great. And you're right, it does have, like, you know, other multiple meanings. It's like, and, and Jeffrey Deaver has said this to me, that he has at least three meanings to all his titles. Oh, at least three for everyone? Yeah, like, and it's, when you think about it, how can you have three meanings for every title? You know, and it's, I don't know. Now I'm going to have to look at all his titles and go, I wonder what he meant by those. Yeah, and that's what he wants you to do. The more you think yeah. about it, the more he likes that. And, you know, the, the funny thing, it's funny we're talking about Jeffrey Deaver because I just got a video call from him this morning that I missed, and I don't know why he called me. And, you know, <gasps> I'm serious. I don't make these well, things him. up. Are you going to call him back? you got to call him back. Well, I'm not sure I should. I, I want to wait and make sure that it's okay. I feel like I feel like I'm calling the king of England or something, you know? <laughs> so do I call him back or do I wait? For, <laughs> I don't know. I, I have to call you. But he's, he's such a wonderful man. He's so intelligent. But he's one of the most in, intimidating people I've ever met. I, I, I get scared when I talk to him. Take the plunge. Call him back. I feel like, you know, I feel like I'm not in his league or something. You know what I mean? Nah, you're all human. Call, call the man back. And that's it. That's Tell the way you point. should approach anything in life. I mean, if I met the, if I actually did meet the Queen of England, I'd probably say, 
I'd probably say weird things to her. Oh, <laughs> yeah. like I carried, like I carried a watermelon. Yeah, some, I mean, who knows what would come out of my mouth? We don't, and that's half the fun of life when you don't know what you're going to say. If you always knew what you were going to say, how boring would that be? Sure. I, I, one of my favorite stories is I went to do a, um, a signing for uh, the Southern Independent Booksellers in New Orleans, and I was still new to the game. And um, when they had, they had a very good setup where you met, you, you went to this certain area at a certain time, and it was everyone was on a schedule, and, and they had it all set up where you had two people, two volunteers, one handed you the book, open to the page, you signed it, and you handed it over to another one, the purpose being that anyone who attended the conference already got a signed book. They didn't have to wait in any line. If you wanted it personalized, that was between you and the author. So I went, I wanted to be, I wanted to do my due diligence and went to where I was supposed to be but several hours early so that I would know when it was my time to just go. So they, someone recognized me, and they were like, well, why don't you just find your, your books now? And I was like, oh, no, 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 I don't want to bother anybody. I really was just getting, you know, a jump on, you know, a jump on it. And they said, no, you're here, no big deal. They bring me into this room, and it's very quiet. Everyone must have been on a break. And there was just one person, a man, signing books. Hmm. They introduced me, they just said, you know, this is Stephanie Ivanovich, and he was this wonderful, jovial, we had this lovely, while they were setting up my table, I spoke to him for a few minutes, we had this wonderful conversation, and they sat me down, and as I'm signing, I looked at, you know, one of my volunteers, and I was like, is anyone famous going, you know, at this, at this conference? And the woman's face literally dropped. And she did the hidden pointing of the finger towards the man that I had been just having this great conversation with. And it turned out to be Pat Conroy. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> Dead serious. And the one of, and of course I felt like an idiot, like talk about stepping on your tongue. But in a way I'm glad because before I knew who it was, I was able to be authentic, and we had this great conversation. And then, of course, after I knew who it was, it was all, hey, man, you know? Exactly. You didn't know what to say. And you, did I offend him, or is he never going to speak to me again? Of course, I'll never see him again anyway, so what's the difference? <laughs> you know what? He was the most, I, I almost can't read any of his books now because I just can't, I can't, picture young Pat having lived through, you know, some of the, the tr you know, traumatic experiences. Um, I just always want to remember him as this happy, warm, I can't even, I can't even put it into words just what a charming, wonderful individual he was. And it's one of my fondest memories. And, you know, the world should miss him as much as you know, I did. That's a, that's a, I knew it was going to be somebody famous. It was a question of who it was, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. And it, I never got to meet him or talk to him, which is a shame because I would have given a lot to do to do so. But, you know, it's, oh, it's, it was a missed opportunity. And you know what? That's okay. But if you had met him, you would have. Just if somebody said to me, you can have lunch with any author you want tomorrow, the, the, immediately the first person I would pick would be Stephen King. Without, oh, without, okay. 
without a doubt, that would be the first author because there's something about him that I just love. I would just love to talk to the man and to, to be in the same room with him alone well, would I, just be a, a total. I certainly hope. I certainly hope he doesn't write what he knows because that would be terrifying. I did. I did have a chance <laughs> to interview his son. Really? And I thought, and I, and me being the stupid idiot that I am, I thought, I'm going to write to his son and ask if he'll introduce me to his father. You're so funny. <laughs> and I did. And I did. And I thought, my God, David, you're so, you're so unbelievably, st- I, 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 I don't know what the word is, but I was like, what, what have I got to lose? The only thing he can say that would be, is no. <laughs> hey, if you, if you don't ask. The answer is always no. Right, and and what's no. the difference? It, and what is he going to come back and say? I hate you for asking. Don't ever ask that again. Right, right. I don't right, think right, so. Right. Authors don't answer that way. No, not usually. But the the sad part is, I never heard back from. Him at all. Oh, okay. Well. So I guess that was my no. <laughs> it was. <laughs> and uh, so thank you for telling me that. Now after all this time, I, you know, but but all I could think of was this is my golden opportunity because I my brother has dared me. Since you'll never get an interview with Stephen King. You'll never get it. And, you know, of course, that makes you want to get it even more. Sure. And it's like, like where, how would I ever even attempt to get an interview with Stephen King? But I think you should just ask. But I, I used to think that about Patricia Cornwell. I've now interviewed her twice. See? And, you know, you just never know these things and why they happen. And, you know, and all you can think of is, why would they even bother with me? I'm nobody to them. Yeah, but you're like a connection to readers. Yeah, I guess that's it. But I, it's not like I have millions of listeners. I just have some, you know. But Well, okay. <laughs> that's true. But I'm I, not I, sure that that, you know, matters. But it, in the publishing industry, the more followers you have, the more likely you are to get what you want. I mean, if I were if I were Ellen DeGeneres and I called up and said I want to have this author on my show, you know, they would they would actually entertain the idea. Absolutely, aggressively. <laughs> but me, they just say, "You? Who are you?" You know. Yeah. David. <laughs> you David feel, and your and your book talk. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you almost want to say, "Well, I'm somebody too," and maybe, <laughs> and maybe I would. I also got, um, also got to interview the Diary of a Wimpy Kid author, Jeff Kinney. Oh. And who would have ever thought that would happen? That man has yeah. millions. I find, I find that as I go through the process, I find that most writers are very agreeable to, first of all, like, you know, writing is so solitary. Like, you have to Do you feel alone? Did you feel alone writing under the table? Um, I felt a level of being alone with every book except Big Girl Panties because that was always I was writing either with groups or with friends or, you know, I, I had a job, so... Well, what if you, like, right outside when it's, like, really sunny out and nice and... You know what? Then I got to worry about bees and ticks and, you know, that's, like, a whole different, you know, sort of um, dilemma for me. Mm-hmm. That, but outside doesn't necessarily solve your loneliness problem. You know, like, but I would think it would. I would certainly think it would help if you're sitting in the sun and enjoying the sun and enjoying the outdoors and watching what's going on around you, that it would be somewhat pleasurable. Um, you know what? I, I'll, I'll try it again. <laughs> I'll try it again this summer. I'm not one who could write. Like I've always admired people who can 
right in like the library or the Starbucks or the Panera and I just you know it's like a double-edged sword I almost need the solitude to focus and at the same time after a while I feel like you know oh man okay now when Tristan and Zoe first meet we think to ourselves oh my god there's these people are perfect for each other these two people are perfect for each other. We feel that completely. Are we supposed to feel that? I don't think that there's a crime in, in feeling it right away. I always like, you know, when you write um, in, you know, women's fiction, you know, more romance than women's fiction, and I sort of waver between the two, you know they're ending up together because, you know, Happily Ever After is part of, like, the genre for romance. So for me, knowing that going in, you just I, I try to focus on making that ride fun. Mm -hmm. Because you sort of know where it's going to go. Um, I think in the very beginning, when she first shows up, she's probably like, I'm not even sure, you know, who this guy is. And then as it starts to um, unveil, then you see just how right they really are. So, and then we're reading it and we think, oh my gosh, she's created these two perfect characters. They're perfect yeah. for each other. It's like, why haven't they met before? You know, and what, and that's, it's very thrilling to know that there are people out there that we could all relate to like that, that we could have that yeah. same experience. And I guess, and reading it, it gives you that thrill. You're like, wow, this could happen to me too. And I wanted to get away from like the angst of, there were two things I wanted to get away from. One I didn't want a woman who needed saving. I wanted, you know, maybe maybe spiritually she was lacking a little bit, but she was determined, she was focused, she had a goal, you know, she was working her program, it was it was working for her. And I didn't, you know, I wanted to have characters. It's okay to like each other. Like you can get your conflict from somewhere else. It doesn't always need to be like the angsty, you know, enemies to friends or enemies to lovers. I, I really wanted to just, I think we're at a time where people just genuinely liking each other and hitting it off right. feels good. And it feels good. And it does feel good. And it's not like, it's not like Fifty Shades of Grey where there's a lot of violence involved with it. You know? well, yeah. And I, I hate to say that, but I mean, of course you read Fifty Shades of Grey and you feel the romance, but you think, why in the world would she like being spanked? I mean, why? You know, well, because chicks do. <laughs> obviously, obviously, you didn't read my second or my first book. Oh, okay. Some of that going on in that. Was there but no? Was, was there also, really? Yeah, but I was also kind of. I was like, you know, when Big Girl Panties came out, I think it was 2013. So Fifty Shades was like all the rage, and that's sort of the motivation behind the sweet spot because in the second in Big Girl Panties the secondary characters are this baseball player and his wife and you know she's into it they're into it you mm -hmm. know so um, again there's like not really any tremendous angst about it you know that's what they like and you know what they're two consenting adults and I thought okay just, and and people it, love them, you know, and, and I, it, I'm okay with that too. But I also wanted, you know, to venture off that, mm -hmm. like that sort of, you know, risky, you know, 
sometimes taboo-looking stuff. But, hey, look, Fifty Shades of Grey sold, what, 50, 70 million copies? Oh, I, I, unbelievable. Somebody, you know, people people didn't mind reading it. So, um... I somehow didn't picture him looking like Jamie Dornan. Not that there's anything wrong with Jamie Dornan, but it, yeah. I just... I like the movies, too. I read the books, and I, I enjoyed them. But I would never, even if I didn't, I just... I'm not an author who talks badly about other authors. Right. You know? No, I, I, read, I read them all. I enjoyed them all. But you still wonder, you know, what kind of relationship would it be? And what you want to, it's almost like you want to meet this, this woman and, and say, well, what, why would you enjoy that? You know, what, what would, and I don't, I don't condemn the author. What she did was, was brilliant. I mean, it, 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 it opened up a whole new genre of, of readers and people getting to bookstores. And, and to me, that's wonderful. And well, and that's, that's not a new topic. Right. But it's like, just there a topic. Are lots of books. Rosemary yeah. Rogers wrote like that. And, um, you know, Catherine Creel, they're all, you know, Susan Elizabeth Phillips usually has, you know. I didn't realize they were so risque like that. You know, I always think of romance novels being, to them, for the most part, pretty tame. I mean, a little bit, I mean, obviously erotic, but tame and not having that kind of stuff. But, you know, maybe I'm old-fashioned. I just Well, didn't. that's the typical alpha male, I think, is what they like. We're but I doubt that it's, I wonder... That. I wonder if Danielle Steele's ever written about it. You know, has she ever written a book about it? And Jeez, I haven't read a Danielle Steele in a long time. But right. They have in the beginning. I mean, I don't know. And I don't you, know. Writers, I think an important job for a writer is to constantly be evolving. Mm-hmm. For me, like, I, I don't want to use a formula and just write the same, you know, sort of book over and over again. I try to give a lot of thought and detail because I'm a character-driven writer. Mm-hmm. That's what drives well, If you read a novel, life. you have to care about the characters. If you don't care about the characters or, or they don't seem real, you're going to close the book. Absolutely. So that's, you have to be that way. Not, not, I mean, I, I, that's how I feel, and I don't know how everybody else feels. Maybe, I mean, I, I've read authors where the characters didn't feel as real as some of the other authors I've read. And that's just that's just an opinion on my part, and which I'm entitled to. But there are some people that can read a book and just and feel like the characters are real. I mean, it, it always is, and it, each individual person has their own feelings about a book. Absolutely, and you know what? I don't really go to my reviews. That was something my agent like told me very early on. Don't ever go to your reviews. Just don't. Um, but the good stuff, like. They make you know people who want to give you good vibes. They but, make sure you see what they say. Well, don't you get curious once in a while? I want to go online and see some of them. No, but I do picture myself at like eighty years old when this is all said and done, going to all my reviews. And, well, that's fifty years ahead of of us here. And just yeah, okay. <laughs> and just off some crazy you know old lady stuff and and bleh, just you know curmudgeon-y to all my, my bad reviews, but even in, within good reviews, people take away different things mm-hmm. from the stories, and that's okay, too. As long as you feel, like, I don't care what you feel, but I feel like I've done my job as long as you feel something. As, even as, if it's animosity or anger, that's still a feeling. Right. And that's okay, too. 
Well, so you don't mind if somebody writes you a letter and says, "Oh, I hated that character. Why did you have to? Why did you have to create that character? What's wrong uh, with you? You wouldn't you mind know, some if somebody did that." I get I get hate mail every now and then. Do you open? Do you? But how do you feel after you open it up and you read it and you realize they really are angry at you? You know what I think? I think to myself, I have people in my own life who I love to pieces that I can't find time to write to. If you actually took time out of your life and your busy day to spew some negativity at a stranger, I don't think the problem's mine. But like, it, that's it, how I go to it, and just right. Well, when you're whatever. when you're a writer, you have to. You know, unfortunately, that's part of the deal. I mean, there's going to be people that hate something about your book. There's always going yeah. to be that person. But I don't have to acknowledge it. I just I have a folder in my you know, <laughs> called called disturbed readers. And we just file all of that stuff because, you know, if they were to keep writing or, you know, start to be threatening, we want to have a little trail of, you know, what exactly transpired. But I don't answer email like that. I, I just am like, okay. Yeah. That's a waste. That's, that's a waste of my positivity. Well, it's not going to change that you're still a writer. You still enjoy writing and you're going to write. Yep. But do you say to yourself, well, maybe I should change something, or maybe I, maybe, maybe Tristan isn't as likable as I, and Tristan's very likable right away. I mean, the first time we meet him, we're like, oh, my God, can yeah, I meet somebody like nice this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do get a lot of that with, with Tristan, which yeah. was refreshing, too. Yeah. And, um, I, and, you know, and he's, he's such a good guy, I mean, and... You'd say to yourself, are there more, are there more of them out there? <laughs> sure, and I'm writing them. I'm writing them all. Because <laughs> I think I'm on to something. So well, wait a minute. You, you're writing them, but have you ever met any like that? I mean, lots of great guys. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to think that, first of all, my husband and my two sons were right. raised to be great guys like that. And hmm. There's a lot of like good men out there. I don't think that a good man is like. Well, how did when you first met your husband? How long did it take you to realize he really was a great guy? I mean, you didn't you didn't know it the first time you met him, did you? No, but we're going back like thirty something years. So uh, you know, I've been married for thirty three years. So I think I do remember the joke was like because I met him in like a, a nightclub, and I remember going, "I'm going to marry that guy." You really thought that right away? I did. And it, it was even crazier that he turned out to be, um, he went to school with my sister. I was like three years behind. Well, what made you, well, but that's, and I'm curious about that. What made you feel like you were going to marry him just by looking at him? Uh, I think I probably said that to every cute guy. <laughs> well, there must have been something about him. I mean, did he have a great body? Um, you know what? I was. In my 20s, and so was he. I mean, doesn't everybody look good in their 20s? I don't, <laughs> well, there I don't may know. be a few exceptions, but yeah, yeah, I think most people look relatively handsome in their 20s. You know, he had a really, he had a really cute face, and he had lovely blue eyes. And you know, when I met him, was he interested in you when you met him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we sort of, you know, I, was I, it love at first sight? Do you think? No, I don't think, not for him, maybe. <laughs> but for you, yes. <laughs> maybe. Obviously. 
You know, I've loved him for 33 years, you know, 35, 36 years. Well, what if he had rejected you? What if he had decided he did want to marry you? Wouldn't that have crushed you? I don't know. I mean, rejection is part of, like, life. No, but your, yours so. wasn't just, but yours was the determination you were going to marry him. If somebody... Had... Well, you know what's funny was I met him when I was actually, I was, um, I was one of the first, like, plus-size models in the 80s. Hmm. Um, you know, I was just getting on, you know, I was just getting started in my modeling career. So I wonder if, if I hadn't met him or he rejected me, if I would have kept pursuing that because eventually early on in our relationship, now we said, I don't want my wife being no model. And I was like, okay. So, and it was easy to drop it because I, I didn't really love it. First of all, being a plus-size model in, you know, New York is sort of akin, you know, it's like an oxymoron. Like they, you know, there's a need for it and there was a market for it, but I really took a lot of, they were too, you know, they want you to just shut up and, you know, do your job. But I would get a lot of, well, why don't you lose weight and be a real model? And I was like, you know, I'm getting a paycheck at the end of this. I am a real model. Right. Isn't it, amazing, isn't it amazing how people judge based on what you do or, or it is it is and somewhere along in my 30s i just kind of realized that um you know one life per customer and this is not a dress rehearsal and if you're going to spend your time loathing the person and the only person in your life you're with 24 7 then you run the risk of having a miserable life and i just wasn't willing to have a miserable life Hmm. I'd like to have a, I'd like to have a I'd like to have a, a job where I make tons and tons of money and then just be happy. Find a way to be happy anyway. If I didn't even like the job, but you know, it's, and I think to a certain extent is you you can find a way to love a job it's to some extent. But you know, we all we all have that dream that we're going to wake up one day and we don't have to worry about money anymore. It's it's a it's a non-issue anymore, and that that's what I crave, I guess. And maybe that makes me bad but you know that makes you like 95 percent of the population right that makes you. <laughs> but it, it sounds so awful i mean it's like you care about money that much and it's not really the money that i care about it's the fact that i don't have to worry about it anymore that i don't. yeah but you know what i think your problems just change you know i i don't think they go away they're just you know everyone's used to worrying about money so it's something that we're almost comfortable in and I, it's, but it's another thing with me. It's like I, I, I know that I've had some more money. I could, I could enjoy things more. You know, I could order, I could, I could go to Amazon and order whatever I wanted. And the thrill of that, I mean, that's a thrill for anybody. Do you want to hear a weird story? Let me give you this weird little story. When I signed my contract for Big Girl Panties, it was a very lucrative contract for three bucks, and um, they gave me a check that was literally more money than I think I had seen, like, ever at, at one time. Wow. You know? And, um, you know, I put it in the bank, and I bought myself a beautiful new car. I bought another, you know, I bought a Mustang, and, you know, uh, I was just over the moon with all of it. And you're right, I didn't need to worry every night when I put my head down what was going on. Within a month, and this is when I was still living near Asbury, within a month, Hurricane or Superstorm Sandy hit. And we had a tree, a giant tree. I'm talking like a nine-foot base, um, 
fall and crush all our cars in one shot and took out the power to the neighborhood and the tree was huge. The hole it left had to have been like 20 feet deep and it, it was right in our front lawn and oh, wow. all our cars were crushed and we literally sat on the porch the next day in complete like shock and just sort of looked at the destruction, you know, on our street, on in front of our home, in the neighborhood in New Jersey. And the irony, like I remember sitting on the porch and looking at this destruction and going, I have more money in the bank than I think I ever did in my entire life, and it means absolutely nothing today. Hmm. There was nothing that could get me out of the situation that I was currently in. Right, exactly. And that was profound to me. Like, you want to talk about a wake-up call. And I was like, you know, well, if you have your health, if you have something or someone who loves you that you can love back, you pretty much have everything you need. The rest of it is just stuff. And that's and that's a very comforting way to look at things. And I'm not saying I don't agree with it. I do. I, but you still have that little voice in the back of your essence. But it still would feel great with a million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> you know. It was, you know, for a while anyway. Right. And it, but you have to make new friends. Like all your old friends would fall away. And every, not saying there's there's a whole list of stuff. And again. I think of someone like Steve Jobs had all the money he could, couldn't save him, couldn't save him. Right, exactly. And, and that, and you know, there's a million of those stories. It's almost so, like people that get a lot of money are almost, they're almost cursed sometimes. Well, they do have a show, you know, how lottery ruined my life, how right. people sell one lotteries and then all of a sudden... <laughs> and then you watch those shows and you think, boy, I wish, this, I, wish I could win the liar just to see if it would do the same thing to me. <laughs> yeah. Or then I turn on, like, outrageous pools where people have, like, $200,000 pools that, like, have all of this great stuff. And you're like, oh, let me give it another thought on this money thing. Have you ever had a $200,000 pool? I have not. <laughs> yeah, I went to Disney World. And I think <laughs> that was it. I mean, and, you know, these life happens and things happen in your life, and you there's. It seems like there are certain people that are are. I don't want to say cursed, but things bad things happen to them a lot. And I'm sure you have a friend like that. I have a friend like that. And then there are people who seem to get everything, and they they can find a way to get whatever they want in their life. Yeah. I sort of go back, you know, it all really comes down, A, to my martial arts training. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I remember, you know, my parents saying, uh, you know, and again, they were teachers, keep your eyes on your own paper. Just keep your eyes on your own paper. And that's, because yeah, that's... don't know. They always talk about, you know, when you see someone struggling, you're not walking in their shoes. I think that's true for everybody, regardless of how it looks you or to the outside world mm. and I, I try to always be conscious of that and again one life per customer so I think I would think on, right I think ahead. of the people that, that do a lot for charity people like Monty Hall who they say gave away and during his lifetime was was instrumental in giving away over a billion dollars to charity 
George Michael, too. And you think to yourself, what a great feeling to wake up in the morning and know that you've made that much of a difference, or at least you, you've been part of it. Maybe you didn't right. do the whole thing, but you were part of it. And that's got to be the most incredible feeling in the world. I'm always touched by, and again, I, I watched a special on George Michael. It's, it's the people who do it without anyone knowing it right. that he really shows their heart. I mean, Robin Williams went to hospitals to visit kids all the time yes. and make them laugh. Yes. Kids who were not probably not going to make it much longer. Not going to make it. Yep. And he did that because it made him happy and it made the kids yep. happy. And he yep. really wanted to make those kids happy. That's a wonderful thing. I mean, that's an well, they've always said you should, you know, works of charity should be done in secret. Right. I mean, it's easy, you know, like you see someone, you know, give a bunch of money to something and, you know, in the back of your head, you know that it's a tax write-off, so they're just capitalizing right. on, on a tax write-off. But people who do it in silence aren't capitalizing, uh, you know, I mean, they, they might still be getting the tax write-off, I don't know. But they're not, you know, marketing the fact that they're doing any great work. They're, they're doing what you, know, you were supposed to do, which is you do it secretly and quietly, and you're not doing it for accolades. You're doing it to feel good. And... But do you, do you enjoy do you enjoy writing every book or is it is there some kind of is it, it does it become too much at times? Well, again, uh, you know, they wanted me. Uh, my publisher wanted me to be a book a year writer, and I guess again because of the martial arts training, you know, you get that whole perseverance. And I was like, well, sure, if you think I can do it. I mean, I was I told everyone, you know, it took me basically forty nine years to write this first book, but okay, if you think I can do it, I can do it. And the truth was, I can't. And it, it started to make me terribly unhappy. But don't you, would you, would you, would you still have fun writing sometimes? Now I do. Now I do. Now that Under the Table is like out, um, I feel like between Under the, my last book was The Total Package. Between The Total Package and Under the Table, I did a lot of growth and I, I did a lot of soul searching. And I worked real hard, sometimes struggled to find the balance. Mm -hmm. And I think I may have that now. And again, I was taking too much advice. Like I was hearing all this advice and, you know, I didn't know which of it. I didn't realize that I could pick and choose what advice it applies to me. And you're a very interesting woman to talk to. I mean, well, you're, very, you. you're very practical and you're very down to earth. And you, you speak your mind. Well, right? I appreciate that. And you, you do, <laughs> and I, and it, but it makes me want to do the same thing. So that that kind of we kind of connect like that, like like a jigsaw puzzle. Things go together, you know. Because when 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 somebody's honest with you, you sort of want to be honest with them too. Sometimes, sure. There's 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 that certain pull, like, well, if they can be that honest, I can be that honest. And I try to go through everything with no expectations. Like there's no quid pro, you know. Quid pro quo. But do you so, have do you have an idea for the next book? Oh my gosh, I'm working two of them right now. I love them so much. I don't know. Like some days, I'm like, I don't know which book to work on because I love them both. So, um, but I I want to finish one and get it out there and see how I'm going to publish it. I think this is a fascinating time mm -hmm. for the industry in general. Because, you know, thanks to self-publishing now, great writers who may not have had the opportunity to be seen 
can do it on their own. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, not everyone. I, I've always believed that if if you if writing is your passion, you have at least one great story. Yeah. Whether it's your first story, whether it's your fifth, whether it's your hundredth, whether it's your last, you have one great story in you. So, um, you know, sometimes you're, you're, you know, people publish, they're so excited, I think they publish too quick. So they end up doing themselves a disservice, but I certainly understand the enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's fascinating. Um, well, we'll look forward to more stuff from you. It's, yeah, I mean, you're you're I guess you're a very interesting woman. It's been well, thank you, David English. It's been wonderful. <laughs> I like the way you say my name. Nobody ever says my name during the interview like that. <laughs> it's great. It's different, um, and it embarrasses me for some reason. I don't know why. Oh, but... I'm sorry to miss. No, but that's a good thing. It's a good thing. That's it's good to be embarrassed once in a while. You, yeah, you, you, you can't. Thank God for that. Well, it is. It's a it's a good feeling. It means somebody if somebody's using their name. They care about you. I literally put on my Facebook page, my author page, that um, when I was on this, this little tour that I did, I had rented, they rented me a car, and I ended up getting a Jeep Wrangler. Mm -hmm. Literally, it had no running board, and it took, I don't know, it was maybe a four-foot up, like step up to like get into it. And if you know me or you met me on this tour, I'm about five six, and and I'm bottom heavy. And every time I had to get in and out of this jeep, it was just a joke. Luckily, I still remembered my crescent kick from my, <laughs> my taekwondo days, so I would have to like woo, kind of get my. Well, that's a good. You have a lot of fun. You have a lot of fun in your life, and that's what you you should have fun in your life. I really do. I don't care. You know what? This is my life, and I get to make the most of it. And, exactly. You know, and the book, I don't give anyone else that power. So. And we should mention the book again. It's called Under the Table. It's out tomorrow. I love the cover, by the way. And it's, I mean, Me I love too. that. It's very Isn't colorful. It, it really is. It was like the perfect Easter time cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I adore this cover, actually. Well, thank you for doing this interview. And, and uh, this has been David's Book Talk, and we'll talk to you next time. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. You have just enjoyed the podcast of David's Book Talk, brought to you by your host, book lover, David English. Please visit us at davidbooktalk.com, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast. We want to hear from you, and we don't want you to miss our upcoming shows with top authors like Mary Higgins Clark, Patricia Cornwell, Lisa Scottolini, Jackie Collins, Nelson DeMille, Michael Connolly, Sue Grafton, Steve Martini, Dale Brown, David Baldacci.